Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 21st, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 to 17. Ezekiel begins a stretch of several chapters comprised of the word of the Lord concerning nations around Judah. Today's text includes the word of the Lord to Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Goodness gracious, thanks for having me. It's an exciting day. We're starting a new section in Ezekiel. I, uh, I broke my Google search bar looking up all these things. It's it's exciting, and uh, we're, it's going to be a fun time. <laughs> That's for sure. That We are starting a new section in Ezekiel. So remind us what's going on in the book of Ezekiel. What's the new, where, where, where's he been before this, and what's the new thing that we're starting today? Well, I'm going to be honest. He says a lot, and I think what I got out of it the most is that God is upset, and uh, bad things are going to happen, um, mostly to everybody. Um, you see, Ezekiel... Uh, as a prophet and in his book, it's really kind of broken into three sections. And so chapters 1 through 24 is the, the first section where God is, is proclaiming his, his judgment and you know what's going to happen to his people. And then you get into this new section today, which is chapters 25 through 32, where God is proclaiming his judgment against the Gentile nations as well. And then in you know 33 through 48, you start uh, the last, the third section where it talks about um, restoration and, you know, we, we get back around to God being merciful and not casting us off forever. And so today we are starting this, this middle section, this, this, this new section in chapter 25, where we hear God proclaiming his judgment against the nations. And in these chapters, 25 through 32, God proclaims his judgment uh, in in seven seven prophecies or uh, against seven nations, right? And so he proclaims his judgment uh, against the uh, against Ammon, against Moab, against Edom, against uh, Philistia, against Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. And then Egypt gets sort of their own little special time where there are, there are seven nations, and then you get to the seventh nation, and there are seven prophecies against the seventh nation, but you'll hear all about that when you get to, you know, the chapters on Egypt. But this, this idea of seven is really kind of big, because when you get into um, prophecy and, you know, numerology, not the weird superstitious one, but just conveying ideas through numbers, like seven belongs to God, right? There's seven days of creation, there's the seven seals and seven trumpets and this, so this. And so these are seven judgments against these nations and it's all, it's all God's judgment, right? So it's very God doing the thing. Um, and so, so that's kind of where we're at, is we're going to hear about, about these judgments against these nations. And Ezekiel is 
working together with Jeremiah and Daniel to, to give us and to give his people, not only during that time, but, but us today, uh, a picture of what God is doing throughout this, throughout this time of Babylon coming in and exile and the like. And so, so they're all working together. And this is, this is one of Ezekiel's unique contributions to that. When you say Ezekiel's working together with Jeremiah and Daniel, obviously those two are contemporaries of Ezekiel. What in particular from those two prophets stands out that connects with this part of Ezekiel? You're right. So Ezekiel is a contemporary of, of you know, both Daniel and, and Jeremiah. A little bit more so does he, does he sort of partner with Daniel. But anyway, so, so Ezekiel and Daniel, let's start there. Ezekiel and Daniel... Um, they're both exiles um, in Babylonian captivity. Uh, it's it's pretty likely that they would have they would have known of each other if if not known each other very well. But Daniel and uh, Daniel and Ezekiel have have different jobs, right? And then likewise, their their writings have a different purpose as well. And so Dan, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel they are sort of complementary prophets. And together they form kind of a, a whole picture. And the reason that this is important and that we, we bring it up in the beginning is because as I listed those nations, uh, notice that Babylon was not among them. Um, Daniel covers sort of a much larger uh, history of the four great nations, which is the four beasts. And between his larger sort of historical visions and prophecies and also the things that Daniel records with Nebuchadnezzar and, and Balthazar, the judgment of Babylon is, is covered pretty much at length under Daniel. Uh, Ezekiel, at least here, doesn't really address Babylon because Babylon is acting as God's agent right now. And to speak against Babylon at at this particular point in the prophecy, at this particular point in time, would really be to speak against God's representative. It would be to speak against God himself. And so Ezekiel doesn't. Um, Babylon just isn't mentioned here. So then what is Ezekiel doing? Well, uh, again, the prophets work together to paint this, this much more full picture and Ezekiel and Daniel, they're taken into captivity before Jerusalem's destruction. But Jeremiah, as a prophet, he's the one that lived through that destruction. And so in chapter 24 of Ezekiel, verses 26 and 27, the prophet announces that there is going to come a messenger who escaped Jerusalem that's going to come and tell the exiles of Jerusalem's destruction and that prophecy is fulfilled in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, verses 21 and 22. And so the time in between that is the destruction of Jerusalem, but that destruction itself is covered by Jeremiah. So while all of that's happening, the enemies of God's people are mocking and laughing, and they are using this as an opportunity to take advantage of, of Judah's uh, precarious, really tragic situation and, and to hurt God's people. And so here in chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel writes, um, and he's, he's, he's writing a warning to them that maybe they shouldn't be laughing so hard 
as if they think they've gotten away with something. Because if God is going to judge his people so harshly, what do you think he's going to do to you? And that's, that's really kind of what this section is about. You know, the other prophets have got everything else covered, but while God is doing these things to his people, what about the rest of the nations and their actions and their taking advantage stuff of, of stuff? Ezekiel is covering that right now. All right, so he's going to start with, and you, you get four of those seven today here in chapter 25. He starts with Ammon or, or Ammon, I think is how you, you pronounced it. So give us some, one of the things that we're going to need to do with each of these nations is a little bit of background. Who are these people? What do we know about them historically from the scriptures, their interactions with God's people? So give us, what do we know about Ammon? Yeah, when you know when it comes to names and pronouncing names, I'm I'm really bad at it. And sometimes even if I know how to pronounce the name, I will mispronounce the name because <laughs> it irritates people and I like that. So long as everybody knows who we're talking about, I think it's I think it's okay. But like uh like I really like to say Augustine because all the Latin people like Augustine and then <laughs> they get to be irritated. Yeah, so Ammon, Ammon, Ammonites, right? Um, these guys, they live on the east side of the Jordan, and they are sort of north of the Moabites, of the, the Edomites. They live in the country that is uh, modern-day Jordan. And by the way, that is why the capital city of Jordan is Amman, because they are the Ammonites or Aramites or whatever. So historically, that's that's why their capital is called that. Um, when when God sent Babylon to to judge Judah, the 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 Ammonites decided that this was a great time for them to take some land for themselves, and so the Ammonites take this opportunity. Uh, to go in and to steal some land from the tribe of Gad, right? Not God, but the tribe of Gad. Um, this is recorded in Jeremiah 49.1 that they do this. Um, and uh, there is, there's another part in Ezekiel where, um, where he says that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar turns his sights to Ammon and there's, there's another city, but there's, there's no destruction of Amon listed at that time. And part of the reason for that is because as Nebuchadnezzar is coming through, the Ammonites are like, no, 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 we'll go with you because we want to beat them up too. And and that was it was never their job and they were bad people anyway. And so uh, so it turns out really bad for them. But they're taking they're taking this as an opportunity uh, to to steal some land. And so then God says that the men of the east are going to take care of them. He's going to give them over to the men of the east. And uh, Josephus does tell us later that Babylon does come back and sort of take them out, right? So Nebuchadnezzar does come back and finish the job. But that's that's kind of the background of the Ammonites, sort of where they're from and where they were located and what they were doing that, in a practical sense, made God so angry and then what happened to them. All right, so let's let's read then here in Ezekiel 25, and you've, you've given us a hint as to what we're going to hear already, what the Lord has to say to the Ammonites. This is Ezekiel 25 verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, 
because you said aha over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. And I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's the prophecy against Ammon there in verses 1 through 7 of Ezekiel 25. <laughs> Pastor Linnell, just and I know we're going to kind of talk about all of this together and you know how what we should make of texts like this as Christians today, but as we read those verses against Ammon to start off with, anything that we should really pay attention to as we consider those seven verses? Uh, it's just really bad to upset God. Um, I think that, <laughs> right? Yeah. So as we're reading through, sometimes it doesn't come across in the English because they don't say things quite the same way, right? There's there's colloquialisms, there's cultural expressions. Uh, we have an exchange student from uh, Brazil uh, who is with us in the congregation, and uh, the happy birthday song, like you don't just translate the words of the happy birthday song and then sing them. Like in Brazil, the the happy birthday song so the tune is similar, but it sounds nothing. The words sound nothing like like the happy birthday song because it's just not the way they say things. I mean, it doesn't work. It doesn't sound right in the language. And culturally, it doesn't convey the same sort of, sorts of things. So when you're reading through here and it says, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated, like that's a little cringy in English. It's It's not in you know in in hebrew like it's not um and it also conveys something else it's not about like oh you said aha right well what if they had said woohoo would that have been okay no the point is is that they're they're taking this opportunity to to mock they don't see this as a call to repentance and they don't see it as any sort of loss for themselves um, they, of course, didn't get along with um, with Judah. They didn't get along with Israel, and they're really excited that this terrible stuff is is going. If they were Germans, we'd call it Schadenfreude, right? Mm. And so they're they're very excited. But look at the things that they're excited about that he mentions, right? The first thing that he mentions is over my sanctuary when it was desecrated. Well, why do they care? I mean, he's he's not their god. So why do they care? Well, first of all, yes, he is. He's the God of all the things, right? And so even if they're rejecting him or they don't know him, like that's not an excuse. He is your God. And by the way, that temple was not constructed only for the Hebrew people. If you remember Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple, like he specifically uh, mentions foreigners and sojourners that have heard of the forgiveness of the Lord that travel to this temple to present themselves in prayers of repentance. And he begs 
the Lord, that the Lord would hear their prayers also and forgive them. The temple was not there as a sign of the prosperity of Israel and Judah. Like the temple was there primarily as a, as a, uh, a, a means of grace, uh, for lack of a better term. And they don't, they don't see it that way. They don't recognize it that way. And they are rejoicing that this symbol of, not symbol, but this place of grace and forgiveness is now destroyed. And they're rejoicing over that. That's, that is the main sort of issue. And then, and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people, but it starts with the sanctuary, right? Because that's, that's the place there. And then what was the land of Israel there for, you know, and what were the people there for all of this leading to the coming of the Messiah, uh, the coming of Jesus, and they're rejoicing over its destruction because they, they don't have any care for that. So it's not, it's not simply about God's people and, you know, God being jealous about Israel and like, well, these are, these are my kids and you can't touch them or whatever. No, the, the whole thing was about grace and they're rejoicing a loss of, of that. So that's, that's one of the main reasons that they're judged. And then, yes, they do take that as an opportunity. You know, this is what is in their heart. And then it comes out in their actions that they go and they try to steal land from, you know, one of God's tribes. Um, so there he says, therefore, I'm going to give you over to the people of the East as a possession. This is the people of the East. This is, this is Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar that's going to come through. They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They'll eat your fruit and drink your milk. Uh, all your things are belong to me. And this is, again, we can make more of it. I just don't think we need to. It's a very descriptive way of saying that not only all your lands and all your cattle and all your things, we're not just passing through as an army, taking these things to support the army foraging we are going to occupy this land and it is belong to us. Um, and then, you know, same sort of thing. I'll turn a bond to a pasture for camels and a resting place for sheep, not your camels, not your sheep. Uh, and then you will know that I'm the Lord. Um, and so after I do these terrible things to you, if you don't want to know me by, by grace, then you will know me by judgment. But either way, you will know. It's just this time you're not going to be very happy. And this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because you have clapped your hands and stomped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart. And so he goes ahead here and he describes what that aha means, right? The clapping of your hands and the stomping of your feet, they're doing a victory dance, they're doing some sort of chant, they're doing some sort of ritual praise to their pagan gods, whatever. Um, rejoicing with all the malice of your hearts against the land of Israel it's not just, it's not rejoicing because the people of Israel won't oppress us anymore or something stupid like that. No, they really, really hate God's people. And they don't just hate God's people, they hate God. This is why, right, it has to do with what's inside their hearts. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I'll cut you off from the nations, exterminate you from the countries, I'll destroy you, and then you will know that I'm the Lord. So when you're dying, I want the last thought in your mind to be, oops. I want you to know it was me. But still, remember, because this is going to come up later when we talk about one of the other nations, the Lord stretches out a hand, his hand against them. It is God's judgment, but it is God's judgment coming through and facilitated by the people or the, the men of the East or whatever, right? So there is an intermediary between God's judgment and them. There's an agent carrying that out to the Ammonites. You described that very well, Pastor Linnell. The The picture that I had in my mind, particularly with the, the word aha, which, as you said, just doesn't really convey it well in English, or the, the picture of clapping hands, stamping feet, rejoicing with malice, the, the picture that I had in my mind 
was the scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where they're getting ready to to kill Aslan, and you've got all the forces of evil there who are <laughs> who are just laughing and and rejoicing over the fact that that Aslan is about to die. It's a very similar picture here, I think. And of course, you know, if you know the I don't want to spoil the whole book for everybody, but if you know the story, I think it, it fits well scripturally with what's going on here. So, Pastor Linnell, let's move to the next nation. We're, we're going to then talk about Moab comes next. So verses 8 through 11, what, what do we need to know about Moab before we read that text? So Moab, right? Moab and Seir is what we're going to say. Um, so Moab and and also then the, the Edomites, they both kind of go together. Um, they're, they are different peoples, but they have a lot in common. So we, we should honestly probably take them together also because uh, my understanding is that Seir is, is a city of the Edomites, but it's included with Moab. Um, but in any event, Moab and the Edomites, they kind of go together in this regard. And Part of the reason that they go together is because the Moabites and the Edomites share an ancestry with the Israelites, with God's people. It's a different ancestry for each of them, but they are related in that cousin that you never talk to or invite to parties kind of way. Uh, The Moabites are cousins of the Israelites by ancestry because they are descendants of Lot, of Abraham's nephew. So if you remember, there was Abraham or Abram and Sarah, uh, and then they took with them their nephew Lot. They come over from Ur into the land of Canaan. They go down. uh, There's a famine. They go to Egypt. And then when they come back from Egypt, they have many more camels and donkeys and things because of stuff that happens with Pharaoh and Sarah. But when they come back, uh, Abram and Lot sort of split up because the herdsmen can't figure things out. And then so Lot goes down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abram rescues him. And then later when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, it's Lot and his wife and his daughters. They come out from uh, Sodom and his wife turns into a pillar of salt. And then after this, they're like hiding out in a cave and Lot's daughters are like, man, we should really help out dad or something and have babies with him. So they get Lot really drunk and they're like, let's make babies with dad. And if you're like, Ugh, yeah. God had the same reaction. It wasn't really great. And they turned into the Moabites. Um, now, Seir was a, a notable city among the Edomites. Um, and the, the Edomites are also related to uh, the Israelite people by ancestry. But they're related by ancestry because the Edomites are descendants of uh, Jacob's twin brother Esau. Or Esau, or how are you going to say it? So if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, like Esau's the older brother and he should carry the promise, but he gives away not only his birthright, but his inheritance of the promise. He gives away all the things because he's hungry or something. And so um, eventually they quasi reconcile, but Esau is not really continued in the story because the promise stays with Jacob, but he's not forgotten. And some of his descendants then become the Edomites. Now, these people, the the Moabites and the Edomites, are people that we know from Old Testament stories long before. The the 
the land of Moab and the Moabites, we know all the way back from um, King um, Balak or Balak or however you want to say his name. He was the guy who hired Balaam to curse them, but then like Balaam couldn't. And then there was the talking donkey and all of that thing. Um, it, anyway, that sort of story. They, they've been a problem all the way back from Judges 3, the Moabites. Um, we also know about the Moabites because uh, Ruth, right, the great-grandmother of David, she was a Moabite. And so um, all of these people also lived sort of east of the Jordan, uh, but they were south of the Ammonites. They lived in the southern part of things near kind of the mountain range and, and the like. So anyway, that's, that's the history of the Moabites and the Edomites. But uh, they also took part in the attack when Babylon came through. Um, Babylon is coming against Judah, and they they sort of lended their aid and decided that they wanted to, you know, help out. This, this is something that's mentioned in in the Book of Obadiah and in yeah. Psalm 133 and in Lamentations and the like. Uh, much later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is also going to come back and he's going to stomp them out. But the Edomites actually kind of lived through that. They don't. The Edomites don't cease to exist until until like 109 or something BC. Uh, it's something that's recorded in First and Second Maccabees. There's a, there's a Jewish leader of them that comes through and and sort of takes them out and takes their land. They were a really wealthy nation, sort of along this great trade highway, and it's it's sort of a thing. But eventually, they cease to exist. So. All right, so there is the background for both Moab and for Edom, these two relatives of the people of God. And we're going to read the text that Ezekiel gives us in chapter 25. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 25. We're going to take that short break right now, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 21st. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we had talked about the background of both Moab and Edom, and now we will read the text that Ezekiel gives us. We're picking up in Ezekiel 25, verse 8. Thus says the Lord God, Because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth, Baal Meon, and Kiriathim. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord." Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. 
and I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. That's the next part of the text. That was against Moab and against Edom, verses 8 through 14. Pastor Lennell, you had a very poetic way of saying it with the Ammonites, and I, I forget how you phrase it. It's, it's bad to—how did you say it? It's bad to disobey God, or it's, you, when you get on God's bad side, it's not good. So same thing applies to Moab and Edom, I think. Take us into these verses. I, yeah, I, I do have a very poetic way with words. Uh, when, you know, when, when you just need to describe how terrible something is, you use the most highly technical and military term I can come up with, which is bad. <laughs> it's real bad. Uh, God doesn't mess around. And you can see that in the way that, that he, he deals with and prophesies against these nations. We were, we were talking in, in the middle of the, in the, in the break there about why he sort of splits these up the way he does. And you had, uh, you had reminded me that you'd informed me that, that Ammon is, is also related as the, the child, the other child from the other daughter from, from Lot. So why then would not Moab and Ammon go more together than with Moab and Edom? Um, I mean, they, they are sort of listed individually, but why are they put in this particular way? And I think the answer is, I don't know. Um, the prophet sort of has his own things, but I think each individual nation, each individual city uh, has their own sort of crimes. Uh, and those crimes, while very similar, are sometimes motivated differently. And so while, while maybe all of them would have participated in the attack and all of them would have harassed Judah during this time, uh, some of them came from a different place in their heart. Um, and others maybe had different actions. And so if you take a look at what the description between these different motivations are, um, you, you can see that, um, that Ammon is really just gloating. But Moab says something a little different. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because Moab and Seir said, look, the house of Judah has become like all the other nations. So what are... What sort of motivation are they talking about when they say this? That Judah has become like all the other nations. Uh, it seems to me that this is sort of an indictment against certainly what they would have considered in, in the arrogance of Israel or of Judah or of God's people, but, but for different reasons. Um, and I think that when we talk about the, the Moabites in this regard, it sounds like they were a bit jealous. You know, why are you so special? We all share an ancestry. Why do you think you're, you're so special as God's people? Like we were, you know, we went along with the whole thing, right? Like you even, you even claim that you're, you're David. Well, it, you're, David's half Moabite. So what makes you so special? And this is not a theme that is unusual to the Bible. You'll, you'll see this later with the Samaritans that have some ancestry with sort of the, you know, the Northern tribes and the places where Assyria had come in and, you know, Jacob's well, and then talking to Jesus, this Syrophoenician, or not Syrophoenician, the Samaritan woman at the well, where she's like, well, why do we have to worship on, you know, that mountain? And so there seems to be that kind of infighting and that kind of jealousy, but Amon's motivation is a little bit different. Um, 
they seem to be pleased with the destruction of the temple and gloating in that regard, whereas Moab is is more pleased that now look, there's nothing special about you. And in fact, there never was. But when they're saying that, the Moabites, when the Moabites are saying that against Judah, they're not, they don't, I don't think they know this. Maybe they do, but they're not actually mocking Judah. They're, they're saying something about God. They're saying something about God's promise, right? See, you're nothing special. You're just like the other nations. And God's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. No, they are. Not because of them, but because of me. And so the Lord takes exception to that. And it's, it's separated out sort of differently. Certainly they're different people. They're different you know, nations, if you will. But their crimes have a unique quality to each of them as well. And so, therefore, I will expose the flank of Moab, beginning in its frontier towns. And he lists these, these towns. And he, he labels them as the glory of their land. Because what Moab has attacked, uh, at least in their words and in their mocking tone, is the glory of, of Judah, the glory of God's people. But that's, that's God himself. And so he says, okay, well, you want to say that they're nothing special because their, their glory has been taken away. Well, but no, it hasn't. I'm punishing them. They're my kids. I'm dealing with it. This doesn't have anything to do with you. And if you want to insert yourself, you're going to regret it. And so that's, that's what he does, right? He takes away the glory of their land, these cities. Um, I will give Moab along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession. And so in a certain sense, then I guess they're tied together in what becomes of them with uh, Babylon coming through. And, and they both fall then to the same agent of the Lord, which is Nebuchadnezzar coming through. Edom ends up falling to, uh, like actually falling later on at the, the hands of at the hands of the what will later be the Jews. So anyway, um, he says, I'll give, give Moab and the Ammonites to the people of the east as possession so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations and I will inflict punishment on Moab and they will know that I am the Lord. Um, when you get down to Edom, uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says because Edom took revenge of the house of Judah and became very guilty in doing so. Therefore, as the sovereign Lord said, I'll stretch up my hand against Edom and kill its men and its animals lay waste, and then he lists some cities. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. So um, Ammon and Moab end up having the same sort of punishment from the same sort of place. Edom is a little different. Edom's motivation seems to be revenge against Judah because of you know, whatever past and previous slights. And so um, Ammon is there to steal land. Moab is there to address some sort of jealousy. Edom is there to take vengeance. And since Edom is there to take vengeance, then vengeance is taken upon them by the Israelites. And it's so a little bit of poetic return in that regard. And then again, uh, Edom survives through um, being occupied by Nebuchadnezzar, but later ceases to exist as a people uh, in um, early, you know, 109 to 110 BC at the hands of the Israelites during the time of the Maccabees. Mm -hmm. um, so it is sort of poetic in that regard, but but they are still God dealing with them in His wrath through agents, whether that's Babylon or whether that's whether that's Israel itself. Interestingly, though, um, I think when He says, "I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel," like that in itself is a is a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a, 
revealing prophecy about what God's plan is for the future. They're mocking God's people as if this is the end of them. And God's like, oh, no, 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 no. They're coming back, and you're not going to be happy. You know? Yeah. After after then Edom, with that, that matter of vengeance, really transfers over into the Philistines as well. That same kind of a theme is going to come up with the Philistines. Now, Biblically speaking, I think the Philistines, those are they often show up in those Sunday school stories, and so maybe that name sounds a little familiar to, to more of us. So tell us about the Philistines. What's the background we need to know to hear what Ezekiel says to them? No, they're terrible. That's true. Um, the Philistines are all over the place. Um, so the Philistines are, are the ones that are a little bit different, right? They don't have any, um, they don't have any like real familial uh, relation. Um, the Philistines aren't uh, located in the same place. Um, everybody else was sort of east of the Jordan, right? Either north or south, and then the thing. Philistines, man, they're over on the coastlands of Canaan. They're um, they're sort of like that coastal strip of Palestine area. And uh, when Babylon uh, attacks Judah, Babylon has to sort of come through the place where the other places are. And so the other places are like, yeah, go get them. We're going to come along. It's, it's almost, I mean, it's not certainly because God doesn't uh, forgivable that they join in because you can't really say it has nothing to do with them. Like Babylon has to come through their lands to get there. What is Philistines doing? Well, the, the Philistines, like they're off minding their own business. They're fishing, doing whatever. And then they see Judah getting attacked and they're like, oh, this is our moment because we haven't been doing this since the beginning of all the stories. So, yeah, I mean, the Philistines are there with the, you know, uh, Goliath and Philistines are there when David is being pursued. Man, David has to cut off all the foreskins of the Philistines and the Philistines are doing all sorts of things They're all over the place. But they take this as an opportunity to come out in force. And the Philistines don't really seem to have any other motivation except to harass and cause as much damage and pain uh, to to uh, Judah and the people of Judah as they can. They're not really there to grab land. They're not really there to do anything. They're just like, oh, oh, this sounds like fun. We got like got nothing else to do. It's just fishing or killing Judah's Judah's people. Uh, I don't want to go kill some people in Judah. They're awful. They're just really bad. Everybody's bad, but they're exceptional. Um, and because of, of this, I want you to notice something very, very special about God's judgment against the Philistines, right? So. All right. Well, let's let's read what Ezekiel has, and you can point out that very special thing that God does in judging the Philistines. This is Ezekiel 25, verses 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord God. Because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity, therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Carathites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. That's the end of our text for today, Ezekiel 25, verses 15 through 17. So, Pastor Linnell, what is the, the special judgment that God reserves for the Philistines? What is the agent of God's wrath? Or who is the agent of God's wrath in this, in this prophecy? Is it the men of the East? 
is it is it judah there isn't one Hmm. right god is like you know what i think i'm gonna do this one myself and that's really scary um and by the way uh god's done stuff like that you know before uh with the philistines but but that's that's sort of this unique thing where, where god's like yep we're going to have Babylon come through and you're going to get yours. Yep. We're going to have Babylon come through and you're going to get yours. Yep. You, you know, I'm going to bring my people back up and they're going to pay you back for it. But you guys, I have had enough of you. And that's, again, that's really terribly scary. And why? Well, what is the unique thing that the Philistines try to do? Because the Ammonites, they're there. They're saying, aha, they're dancing. They grab a little land. The Moabites, they're dealing with their jealousy issues, Right. The, uh, the Edomites are there to get a little bit of revenge, and that's fine. And the Philistines, they're there to get vengeance too. But the addition here is that, and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. Well, that, yeah, that was never part of the plan, right? Judah was not there to be destroyed. That wasn't part of God's plan. Yes, they were being punished. The, you know, the Ammonites took advantage and tried to, you know, do their thing. Everybody else did, but the Philistines took it a little too far. You tried to wipe them off the map just to kill as many as possible to try to get rid of them. And and I'm not going to stand for that. And so they are essentially uh, punished in kind, but it's, but it's sort of a unique sort of retribution because of, of what that goal was. Uh, to seek to actually wipe them out. And again, it's not just God's people, right? Or it's not just God's people. That's not the right way to say it. It's not, it's not just these, these ancient people of Judah. Right? In the background of all of this, and all of the stories in the Old Testament, the thing that you always have to keep in mind is that this is not just a story about God and some ancient Jews. This is a story about God keeping his promise that he made in the beginning in Genesis 3.15, that he was going to send a savior through the offspring of the woman. It's the reason that he called Abram. It's the reason that he gave Abram uh, an heir. The reason that he was faithful with Abram throughout all of the nonsense that Abram was going through. And the reason that he continued to be faithful to his people, even when they were unfaithful to him, keeping his promises throughout all of time. And even here, even during this time, when he's going to send them off into exile, he promises to bring them back and to still keep his promise. He promises to uh, to preserve a remnant of them because it's not just about them. It's about Jesus coming. And the Philistines, the Philistines are not just rejoicing, but they are actively trying to participate in, in the, the execution of God's people that would, in essence, mean no Jesus. That's, that's a big no-no. Like, like that's not just against God's people. Like that, that is the hope of all mankind. And so if there's no Jesus, then there's no point. And whether the Philistines understood that or not is irrelevant. You don't get to exterminate the people of promise because the promise is there. And so, so again, God says he's going to deal with it himself. Um, and, um, I don't know. I don't know how he does that. He doesn't say, but I'm I'm gonna guess it was not good for them. The 
Yeah, no, th- this is this is I love the way that you're you're bringing out particularly that phrase the the ancient hostility or the the never-ending enmity as another translation says it. That I mean and taking that back to the the enmity between the foe and the offspring of the woman that's there in Genesis 3. I mean, I think, you know, that that's really the at issue with the Philistines. I was reminded of a, a conversation I had on Sharper Iron a long time ago, we were studying the book of Exodus and how someone brought this out in the very first two chapters of Exodus when when Pharaoh is there executing the baby boys of of Israel, what's he doing? He's he is participating in this same never ending enmity, this same ancient hostility between the old evil foe and the offspring of the woman. And and that's why the Philistines receive such judgment is because they're not, as you said, they're not just trying to wipe out the people of Judah for fun. What they've really done is they've taken their stand against the Lord and against his anointed to pick up language from Psalm 2, that, that picture from Revelation chapter 12, where the dragon is there waiting to devour the child. I mean, that's that's what's happening throughout the Old Testament with the attack on God's people. It's not just an attack on them. It's an attack on the Lord and on his promise to send the Savior to the world. And that's why the Philistines get this particularly harsh judgment. And I, I do think that pointing that out is a helpful transition for us as we think about this text, Pastor Linnell. We've got about 10 minutes left on the morning. And and we were talking before we, we started our study this morning about whether a text like Ezekiel 25 and the following chapters with this you know, really detailed historical information whether that's more difficult to study than, say, something like the book of Leviticus and all of the ins and outs of the ceremonial law. And I, I guess it just depends on, on who you are as to, to what you think to that question. But this isn't always an easy text for Christians to read. It's not always readily apparent why it matters for us in, the, in this century to know what happened to Edom in the 500s BC. So, Help us with that, Pastor Linnell. What do we do with a text like this? How does how does it make a difference in our lives as Christians still today? Well, there, I think there's a, there's a couple of things um, that that go along with this. You know, God makes a promise to Abraham in in Genesis 12, and He says, uh, "I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you." And what you're seeing here is part of the fulfillment of that promise. And all the way back in, you know, in Genesis 3.15, when you are reading through the Bible, when I was reading through the Bible when I was little, when I was taught those things, uh, really all the way up until, man, even almost maybe halfway through seminary, like the stories, you knew them, but you didn't really understand how they fit together. And sometimes it was it was hard, and it's not that you didn't believe them, but you just kind of wished, I don't know, everybody else got fancy miracles. I'd like to see some of the miracles too. And there's always questions, and you have doubts and other sorts of things. You know, we're we're human beings, and that's not okay, but it's forgiven. Look, this thing was written a long time ago. Like Ezekiel is written a long time ago, like in six slash 550-ish, you know, kind of BC, long time ago, right? This thing is written long before the Edomites are wiped off the face of the earth. And what Ezekiel prophesies here is reasonably specific. And historically, there is no doubt that it comes to pass exactly the way he wrote it out. How is Ezekiel 
writing during the time of the exile, which really nobody disputes, that these things, God's people are going to be restored, and that later they're going to come back and wipe out the Edomites. And then 450 years later, it happens just like he said. Like, that's a pretty incredible coincidence. And you know what? That's just one. That's just one prophecy. And all the prophecies that he lays out there, like he's batting a thousand, you know? That's, that's really pretty amazing. Like, if you're looking at this and you're like, goodness gracious. So, I, you know, the difference between, say, Leviticus and what we're reading here in Ezekiel, like, Leviticus is really wonderful because all of these ceremonial things and the temple things and everything else, they've got these wonderful theological ties to Jesus, and you see how they come out later and the way that they work, and it's just incredibly consistent from a conceptual point of view and a thematic point of view, and that's really hard to do over the course of a thousand years, to keep something so pure thematically, Right. But here you have something that's also historically accurate and consistent. They're making prophecies hundreds of years before they come to pass. And these prophecies are not, uh, by the way, this is not me knocking Daniel, but these prophecies are not like visions of beasts with many iron teeth that you interpret later in hindsight to see clearly. Like he just says, yeah, we're coming back and we're going to wipe you out. And then they do. And and that was not terribly certain from any other perspective than faith at the time. And so whether you're studying either one of those, I think there's this wonderful reassurance in God making promises and keeping them, you seeing him at work throughout history and time to keep his promises. Um, but you see it from slightly different perspectives in each of the different, um, in each of the different books. And all of these working together to give us a tremendous amount of confidence that when God makes a promise, what is he always going to do? He's going to keep it. God knows what he's doing. And so for us, I think when we're taking a look at prophets like Ezekiel, it's, it's a wonderful benefit to us to study the history and to do those things. But it's not, it's not just a history book, right? It is a historical book, but it is not a history book. What this is, is it's a story uh, of God's relationship with his people and with us throughout time in keeping his promises. And so if you see God doing this in all of these different circumstances and all of these different times, throughout all of these different hardships, even when his people are being so terrible, like you have to look at where you are right now. And you say, okay, the world is a little weird right now. And I'm pretty terrible right now. And maybe you think everything's fine. Maybe, you know, you think all of the other stuff is just, you know, alarmistism and conspiracy theory stuff. Fine. Uh, maybe you think the world is literally going to end tomorrow and the United States is going to break apart. and The whole thing is just terrible and it's all, you know, I don't know, maybe you have your tinfoil hat on and you believe other stuff that I'm not going to say on the radio, right? Maybe you believe those things. But regardless of where you think things are, you should know where God is. And you should know what God is doing. And you should know that history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And that God is going to be doing the same thing time and time again. God is going to preserve his people. God is going to preserve his promise. God is going to call us to repentance. And those who, who uh, are so desperately uh, assaulting and trying to tear down God's promise and, and God's kingdom will not uh, prevail. And 
if you're terribly concerned about um, justice in that regard, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will work it out in his time. But also, we should see what God has done with his people and take a little bit of stock and make sure that make sure that we are not maybe mocking like some of the nations do. If the nations should have seen the destruction of God's temple in Jerusalem and the exile of his people and taken that as a warning, then perhaps God's people, as we read about the destruction of the nations and the pagans and those who mock, maybe we should take that as an opportunity for repentance as well. And not simply because God is angry and scary, he is, but because there is mercy and grace in that repentance. You know, even the Philistines, right? The scariest thing is when the Philistines, and he says to the Philistines, I'm going to do it, and there's no intermediary. Absolutely terrifying. How are you even supposed to begin to defend yourself against the Lord? I can, I can build walls against Nebuchadnezzar, right? I can run away from God's, uh, from God's people, the, the, the Jews, as they come to get me. But where can I run from the Lord, or how can I defend myself against him? It's the most terrifying thing that I could think of. But at the same time, when David is given the choice to either fall into the hands of some army or to fall into the hands of a plague that the Lord himself gives, which one does he choose? He chooses for the Lord to deliver that punishment himself. Because he says, who knows? Perhaps, perhaps we'll repent and the Lord will relent. And so, you know, even, even in that most scary moment of judgment, I think we should remember that there perhaps is the most clear opportunity for deliverance and hope. And we know exactly where that comes from, so much more so than the people in Ezekiel's day, the people in you know, the time of the exile, for they trusted in the Lord's goodness, but they weren't able, they didn't get to see it in the same way that we have so clearly through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and who rose again to save us from our sins. To have the Holy Spirit not looking forward at things that we couldn't quite see, but look backwards at things that are revealed to us so clearly. So in the midst of everything that's going on, when we hear about these nations and these people and what God has done throughout history, I think it should give us the clearest opportunity to repent in our own lives and situations and to take comfort and hope in the deliverance that God brings through his son, Jesus Christ. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.